Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody today. Everybody doing well? It's good to see you all. Uh, all right, the youth are still going strong. Not quite as strong, but they're, they're still going. Um, so we are going to be concluding our series today that we've been working on for at least the last couple of months, right? This, this focus on the power of God. And for two months, we've been really centering in on that through the story of Moses and his interaction with God at the burning bush. But if you think about it, you could almost make an argument that we've really been spending three months, more or less, talking about major demonstrative ways that God reveals his power. Because if you go back to Advent and you think about the incarnation, that's another incredible display of God's power. I think about some of the main examples of God's power in the scripture. You have the exodus, you have the incarnation, you have Easter, the resurrection, right? Those are, those are some of the main foundational expressions of God's power. And for the last three months, when you factor in Advent, we've had a chance to really reflect upon how that power is at work in our lives and, and how do we get a greater understanding of it. And so as we begin to transition into a new series, I want to make sure that you understand the whole reason behind this series and, and kind of how it is meant to serve as a backdrop and, and propel us into the next series that we're going to be starting next week. So, so let me briefly recap some of the things that we've tried to accentuate when it comes to God's power so far in this series. Right? We, we began by acknowledging that God's power can't be stopped. Right? A lot of times we don't see it. A lot of times what we see is the power of mankind. Right? We, we see an abuse of power, an oppressive power, and a lot of times that's what gets our focus. But we need to never lose sight of the fact, though it may not be discernible or recognizable, God's power is on the move. Right? It's moving at just the right pace, in just the right way, and it will reveal itself at just the right time. God's power can't be stopped. We talked about how his power is a flourishing power. Right? It, it's one that, that sets people free. It, it leads to flourishing. It leads to creation. It leads to living into this God-given design that he entrusted to all of us. And part of the ways that we see that that flourishing begins is the fact that our God is a God who hears Right? He's one that hears the cries of the vulnerable. He hears the cries of the oppressed, and he wants them to be set free. He wants them to flourish. And so we, we laid that down as a foundation, and that led us into this incredible moment of, of Moses interacting with God at the burning bush. And, and we saw all these different dynamics of God's power. One of the first things that is put on display there is that God is a holy God. This, this venture into his power is a venture into his holiness, right? That, that it's an uncommon power, that reveals an uncommon God who then in turn calls us to live an uncommon life, right? The last thing we should do is to treat God and his power as if it's ordinary, right? But to recognize its holiness and its significance. And so when Moses first expresses even just the shred of self-doubt, right? That question of who am I to go to before Pharaoh? God reminds him of the central promise of scripture. One of the main things that we see taught from beginning to end, right? That, that God's telling Moses, listen, I'm not sending you because of what you can do, but because of who I am and what I can do, right? And he reveals this promise, I am always with you. And the fullness of that revelation comes in this divine name that is essentially translated as God always is. He's not a God that was or used to be. He's not a God that will or someday might be. He is a God that always is. And that's the sort of power that he reveals, and then we lead into this, this dynamic where God tells Moses, you can trust what I say, I'm gonna do what I say I'm gonna do. I have fulfilled things of old. I'm foretelling the things as they're gonna transpire in your midst when you go back to Exodus. And we saw all these promises that were being fulfilled, spoken of hundreds of years ago with Abraham. 
And then we see exactly how it's going to unfold in Egypt. And so then, last week, we saw that despite all those things, Moses is still overwhelmed with self-doubt, right? That the power of self-doubt loomed larger in Moses' mind than the power of God, right? And so we saw this incredible wrestling of these things that Moses was carrying and then ultimately kind of led into that conclusion that what we need to do is to not be people who, who think God's power is just available for someone else, We don't need to live a life of timidity and hesitation. We don't want to shrink back, but we want to rise up with confidence and believe. That's where his saving work is put on display. Now, the undercurrent to all of that is going to lead us to our message today, which is essentially that God's power calls. It calls each and every one of us. It calls us to a particular task, particular purpose. It calls us, and we're going to explore how we can be obedient in that call by looking at this last section of Moses. But I wanna tell you that that's not a question that I want you just to consider today, right? This question of what is God calling you to do and where is his power leading you is not something just for a momentary reflection. To me, it's it's really lifelong, but for sure what needs to be seasonal. It it needs to take some tremendous intentionality. And so here's how we're gonna do that. Uh, We're we're gonna embrace this next season in a couple of different ways to continue to ask this question How is God's power working itself out in my life? Do I truly have my life centered on the gospel? Do I truly follow Jesus the way that I need to? And so we're gonna do that by embracing the season of Lent. Many of you are aware that on Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and that marks the beginning of the Lenten season. Lent is is designed to be a a 40-day season that leads you up to Easter. It's, It's meant to be a season of preparation. In the same way that we do Advent for Christmas, we use Lent for Easter, to celebrate the cross and the resurrection. And so what we're gonna do to help engage this question is I'm gonna ask you to really reflect on that through the season of Lent. And we're gonna have these Lenten devotionals. Oh man, I left mine in my seat. But we have the ushers that are they're gonna pass them away. You guys can go ahead and come forward and start passing these out. Uh, we have these daily devotionals that are gonna be a guide for us as a church. If you have already gotten one of these in your Sunday school classes, they're passing them out. Would you just kind of acknowledge to them that you've got one so they make sure that they don't pass out too many on their rows. Um, but this is something that we're going to use. Oh, thank you so much, Don. Now I've got my visual aid here. Here we go. So we're going to use these starting on Wednesday, and it's a daily devotional guide. Here's what's so cool about it. First of all, I need to give a special word of thanks to Dr. Sharon Greitz, who really kind of helped spearhead and coordinate this effort. But as she and I were talking this morning, it was definitely a team effort, because what you're going to see is that these writings, these devotionals, are a collection from, from you, from church members, from missionaries that are serving as an extension of our church family, of, of artists within our congregation. It's, it's a tremendously, wonderfully put together collective effort, and, and I really hope that it encourages you during this Lenten season. It's going to take us through the Gospel of Luke, and, and going through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to have a chance to really reflect upon our response to the Gospel. We're going to have a chance to really reflect upon what Jesus has done for us. And so starting on Wednesday, I want to make sure that you begin to use this Lenten devotional guide and work through it through the season of Lent and allow it to be an opportunity for you to focus and reflect upon how is God calling me? What does following Jesus look like in my life? Is my life truly centered on the gospel? That's, that's really what I want us to, to do here with this devotional and a special word of appreciation for all those that put it together. Now, in addition to this, What we're gonna start next week is a new sermon series that's gonna take us through the book of Ephesians. I feel like that's gonna be a book that really complements part of what we're seeing in the gospel. 
Uh, the book of Ephesians is, is really kind of divided in two parts. The first part really helps speak to how God's power is working itself out within our own individual lives, but then the second half speaks to what does that look like in the context of community, right? And so that's really kind of the progression is that as we go through this Lenten season to reflect upon what God's doing in our lives, it ultimately is gonna lead us to a question, not just what is God doing with me, but what is he doing with us? And what are the commitments we are willing to make as individuals? What are the commitments we're willing to make as a church family so that we can see God's power revealed and unleashed in our lives, in this church, this community, in this world? so that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's the desire. So I'm excited about this journey. I hope you can join me in that excitement. You can begin to work on this daily devotional, be encouraged by the words of so many others who have these wonderful ways for us to consider God's power working itself out. Now, the ultimate uh, declaration for us, though, this morning is to know that it's never by the efforts of, of mankind. It's never by our own personal strategies that these things bear fruit. It's only by God's presence and it's only by his spirit. And so with that being said, let's go and take all these things to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would continue to guide us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to prepare our hearts for the resurrection, to prepare our hearts for the essence of the gospel, God. Let us never take it lightly. I pray that the words that you have allowed us to, to put into a collection of of devotionals, God, the, the words that we're gonna exchange here on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, God, would ultimately be blessed and saturated with your presence and your spirit, that you would continue to speak to each and every one of us, giving us clarity on where it is that you're calling us and what it is that you're calling us to do. God, may we embrace the fullness of your power, the fullness of the gospel, and give ourselves to a life of obedience so that you might be glorified and exalted. Be with us now, God, as we open your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to finish off this chapter. So where we are at this point in the story is that the exchange between God and Moses at the burning bush has reached a conclusion. Uh, all the signs and wonders are, are done, and now Moses is headed out, and, and we're going to see the last section of this chapter, and this is going to conclude our venture into Moses' exchange with God at the burning bush as we see him preparing for his return to Egypt. So we're going to be reading verses 18 through the end of chapter 4, which will be through verse 31. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform, uh, perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. And at that time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. 
And then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. And what a wonderful story. Now, admittedly, uh, this is one of the loosely, most loosely connected sections of Exodus. It's really almost kind of a series of fragments that have kind of been thrown together. From a, from a literary standpoint, what we're reading is this kind of transition, right? It, it, literarily speaking, it's, it's trying to take us from Moses at the burning bush to now Moses into Egypt. It's explaining how he got from one place to another. But I would submit to you today and suggest to you today that there's a much deeper theological message as well. It's not just a message of transition, but there are several lessons that we can learn in terms of how Moses is responding to God's power, right? That what we see very definitively is that God's power has called Moses just in the same way that it calls each of us. And so now we see the initial responses and how Moses is going to pursue obedience to that call. And so with that as a theme, what we're gonna do is we're gonna kind of work through this incrementally and see that there are many lessons for how we can do the same in our own lives how we can respond and pursue obedience when God's power calls us. And so that's, that's gonna be the approach today. There are several lessons that I think that we can take away from this loose connection of, of verses here. The, the first is when we see that the initial thing that Moses does is he goes to see his father-in-law Jethro, says, let me return to Egypt to see if any of my people are still alive. And Jethro says, go, I wish you well. So the first point that I wanna make is that when God calls, we need to test his call in the context of community and family. I mean, I mean, think about how kind of significant this is. Here's Moses who literally just saw an incredible miracle. Like God showed up in a burning bush and talked to him and performed all these signs. If there was ever someone that had the justification to just go and do without consulting and testing that call with anyone else, it was Moses. But what does he do? He goes and he asks dad, right? He goes and checks with his father. Now, I know Jethro is technically his father-in-law, but let's, let's think about the relationship a little bit, even though very little is mentioned, right? Clearly, Moses didn't have a true father to call his own, given his childhood and the way things unfolded early on, being cast into the Nile, living as an orphan, being raised in Pharaoh's house. He's been in Midian for, what, 40 to 80 years, whatever it is, and, and ultimately Jethro is the one parental figure that he has. He, he is the most father-like figure in his life. And so, so here's Moses having experienced his power, and he's going, and he's going to consult with his father. Right? He's, he's testing out this call in the context of family and community, and that's a tremendous lesson for you and me, right? Because here's the reality. The reality is, is that no matter how majestic of a spiritual experience we may have, no matter what our interpretation of scripture may be, no matter how good our intentions may be, you and I are still susceptible to different forms of disobedience. And so we have to test these things out in the context of community and family, right? And so, so it's important for us never to try to move in isolation. Now granted, that's gonna happen at times, and I'll explain that a little bit more, but we need to recognize the value in testing these things out. Let, let me give you a couple of examples or reasons as to why this is important. Right? Again, the reality is, is that you may have an incredibly ex a, a divine experience, a, a certain interpretation of scripture, certain good intentions, and you know what? You can still be wrong. I know that's hard to hear. 
but it's true, right? You can be wrong about certain things, right? And I think there are numerous examples that we could point to of people that have, have risen up and declared that the Bible no longer says something, that the community of faith for thousands of years has said, no, that's exactly what it teaches, or vice versa. People standing up and saying, no, the Bible doesn't really teach that, even though the community of faith for thousands of years has said, no, that's exactly what it teaches. When we begin to just take this cultural mantra of this is my truth, and I can have it interpret whatever I want, do whatever I want, my experience is supreme, and we don't test that out in community, then we leave ourselves to be susceptible to greater disobedience. And we can create some serious wounds along the way. Not, not just in the, the kind of extreme example of, of cults, right, where people will take their own religious experiences or their own scriptures and, and manipulate God's word, but even just in our own ignorance or, or misunderstanding, the way that we can present ourselves or talk about God and the wounds that it can leave behind. We have to test these things out in the context of community and family. Now, the other reason we need to test out what God is calling us to do is because it creates accountability, doesn't it? Right, it, it creates an opportunity for us to actually have somebody else in our life say, how is that going? What's your next step? What, what is that looking like? Why haven't you had a chance to move here or there and encourage us and hold us accountable? When we keep it secret, right, it's easier for us to just kind of gravitate towards comfort and be like, you know what, maybe that wasn't really what God wanted me to do. Maybe I really wasn't called to do those things, and ourselves we kind of convince ourselves and rationalize ourselves into disobedience. But when we share these things, it creates a natural, almost inherent accountability. The other reason that we want to do this is because it becomes encouraging. It becomes affirming, not just for us, not just for other people to affirm what God has called us to do or asked us to do, but it invites other people into God's story, allowing them to see how God's power is at work. So we need to test these things out in the context of community and family. Now, let me state the obvious. It's not always going to be well received. You're not always going to get support, right? And in fact, there are a lot of different ways that, that family members in quote-unquote community may discourage you. In fact, Jesus himself says, right, that because of him, a man will be turned against his father, a daughter against his mother, that a man's enemies will be found in his own household, Matthew chapter 10. Right, so we know it's not always gonna guarantee support, but we still test it out in the context of community. And one of the other cool things about this particular passage is Jethro's response, right? Go, I wish you well. I love that. Because we all know Jethro could have said a lot of other things, couldn't he? Right, I mean, Jethro could have been like, hey, listen, dude, are you crazy? Like, you're a fugitive. Last time you were there, they were trying to kill you. There's no way you should be going back. What are you talking about you're going back to Egypt? Don't you know what responsibilities are here? Can't you see that I'm getting older? I need you to take care of the land. What about my daughter? You just married my daughter. This is not the sort of life she wants to live or that you should live. Think of all the different excuses or reasons that Jethro could have offered. But what did he do? He gave him his blessing. So a side note, parents. One of the greatest things you can ever do is affirm God's call in your child's life. To set your own expectations aside, your own preferences, your own insecurities, your own desires to move all those aside and affirm what God is doing in their life. It's one of the greatest gifts you can give your children. So point number one, when God calls, we test out that call in the context of community and family. Point number two, God's call is often gonna lead us to face our fears, right? You see what God says next, 
You can return to Egypt because the people that were trying to kill you are no longer alive. They're all dead. And what this does is give us kind of an insight to to the heart of Moses' fears. Now, we know that several of the signs that God had just performed with Moses were dealing with fear, right? Grab a snake by the tail. Look at the leprosy on your hand. All those things were going to elicit tremendous amounts of fear. And what God was saying there was that his power was greater than any fear that you can have. But in this passage right here, what we're beginning to see is to more specificity to what it was that Moses was actually afraid of, the very essence of his fear. We, we don't need to elaborate on this too much because we've talked so much about his self-doubt and some of those other issues. But in this context, what we see are at least two things that Moses is fearful of. Number one, he's afraid for his people. Let me go back and see if any of them are still alive. And I, I think he literally means that. Right, part of what that phrase is teaching us is just how long it's been since Moses was there. A great deal of time has passed. But it also speaks to the severity of the oppression that Egypt had levied on God's people. Right, it, it, it was genocide. It was an attempt to genocide. So he was fearful for his people. He was fearful that this injustice had maybe won the day. But probably more pronounced within his heart was the fear of his own life. Right? When God had said, go and stand before Pharaoh, that wasn't just a call to go stand with somebody and experience this great power discrepancy, right? to, to, to make a difficult trek. Essentially, what God was saying was, march back to the people that were trying to kill you. His call was saying, march to certain death. Sound familiar? If that's what God asked his one and only son to do, to march to certain death, death and his call and his task and his responsibility, that that was inherent here in Moses' life, then shouldn't you and I expect that when God calls, it might quite possibly lead us to face our own fears? And so let me ask you this morning, what are you afraid of? What are those fears in your life? Not just snakes and spiders, because come on, those are scary, but the real ones. The ones you carry deep within. What is it? Is it failure? Right? Is it, is it failure at, at work, at a career, at a pursuit of a dream? Is it failure at school? Right? Not living up to certain expectations that have been placed on you? Is it failure as a spouse, as a parent? Is it failure in relationships? Are you afraid of of disease and sickness? Are you afraid of loneliness? What are those fears that you carry? I want you to identify those fears and then I want you to ask yourself this question. Is that fear getting in the way of you pursuing what God has called you to do? Is it serving as a hindrance? Is it serving as an obstacle? Are those fears creating hesitation in your life rather than obedience and courage? See, here's the reality, church. When God calls, we should be the most fearless people on the planet. But sadly, it seems that more often than not, we act like the most fearful. God's power calls us to face those fears and triumph over them. And that's exactly what he was doing with Moses. Now, the third point that, that we can see as we progress from there is the specificity of God's call. He reiterates it over and over again. Return to Egypt. Perform these signs and wonders. Right? 
uh, Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. And now here at this juncture, we have a very interesting reference to uh, the threat of the firstborn son, which we know, hopefully, if you've heard that story, is anticipating the Passover, right? It's, it's the final plague that, that Moses levies or that God really levies against Egypt where God's spirit and his presence hovers over Egypt and all the houses that don't have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. The firstborn loses their life, right? This anticipates the gospel. It anticipates Jesus. It's one of the most powerful images in all the Old Testament. And now we get a little reference point to it. Okay, and so we don't have time to go into all that today, but, but the point I'm trying to make is that God has reiterated once again, here's what's gonna happen, right? Here's what I ask you to do. He gives great specificity to what obedience looks like. And we're gonna know if, if Moses obeys. Like, you're gonna know if he returns to Egypt or not. You're gonna know if he performs these signs and wonders. And so what I want us to recognize is that when God calls us to something, we need to stay focused. We need to stay on task. We need to understand the specificity of what he's called us to do. Think about it in terms like this, church. We all know that God has commanded us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We all know that God has commissioned us. Go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey, right? But what does that look like specifically for you? How are you actually going to live that out? See, we like to talk in generalities. Those verses are great verses. They're great when we put them on social media, when we write them in our journals, when we talk about them with our friends, but what are we actually going to obey? What does loving a neighbor look like in your life? When we leave it at generalities, you know what happens? Accountability goes down. But the moment we get specific, the moment we actually get measurable, now all of a sudden accountability goes up. So what does it look like for you? How are you actually going to love your neighbor? Does is, is that mean he's calling you to the refugee or the foreigner among us? Maybe he's calling you to the orphan, to the widow. Maybe he's calling you to the neighbor down the street, to the colleague at work. Maybe he's calling you to the nations. But what is he actually specifically asking you to do so that you can truly measure that obedience is being pursued in your life? That specificity is incredibly important. The other reason it's important is because it sets expectations, right? I love this. Over and over and over again, God explains to Moses, listen, I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart, right? He, he's not gonna believe you. I, I think it's such a, an interesting thing to think about it from our perspective because essentially what God is saying is, listen, you're gonna go do some incredible stuff, like amazingly cool stuff that people are gonna write about and talk about for thousands of years, but Pharaoh ain't gonna believe any of it. And so he lets them know, like, you're going to meet resistance. He lets them know that you're going to meet suffering, especially with this reference to the, to the threat of the firstborn son, right? And so part of what we see is that when God calls us, hear me, church, when we're in the midst of God's call, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, right? Following God's call is not living a life of ease. It's living a life of meaning. And oftentimes the things that are meaningful are also very difficult. Right, that, that if Jesus suffered, so will his followers. So we have to set those appropriate expectations. The other thing that I believe this allows us to do is to really understand how we can stay focused and work among the body of Christ. Because the image that we find in the New Testament is what? That the body is made up of many parts, right? We, we get that analogy that, that some of us, we have certain giftings, we have certain aptitudes and passions and certain callings where God is gonna use us as a hand or use this person as a foot or this person as an eye or a mouth, right? We have all these different images in the New Testament of how we work together. 
One of the temptations that we run is that all of a sudden we can get distracted from the things that God has called us to. And we can lose focus on what our function should be within the body of Christ, right? And so I don't know about you, but the way that that can look out look like in my life and really in the life of the church is that all of a sudden you do all these other things because they're good things, they're noble things, they interest you, but before long we spread ourselves so thin, we're doing a thousand things okay and nothing really great because we've lost focus and we're distracted and, and we're not trusting the other parts of the body of Christ to work the way that they should. This is part of my own personal testimony and story, right? I've shared with this with some of you before, right, that that for 17 years, since I was 16 years old, I was convinced that God had called me to be a missionary. And so that's what I ran after. That's what I pursued. But as I got older and I began to test that calling out in the context of community, that call began to change. Because over and over again, people would come to me and they wouldn't say, hey, when are you moving overseas? When are you gonna be a missionary? They would say, when are you gonna be a pastor? And I'd say, that's not, mm -mm, no, like I'm going this way. And they'd say, no, that's, that's really what I see in you. That's what I sense in you. And I'll be honest, it was hard for me to hear initially. And so I remember to this day, this, this moment of clarity where I was, I was praying, I was reflecting upon, I was reading Romans 12, right? That, that wonderful passage we love to gravitate to that talks about God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. And obviously that's what I wanted. God, what is, what is this good, pleasing, and perfect will for me in my life here? How should I be obedient to those things? And then I kept reading and you know what it says? It says, nobody should think of themselves more highly than they ought, but rather in sober judgment according to the faith that God has given them. And it lists out all these gifts. If your gift is teaching, then teach. If it's, if it's uh, preaching, then preach. If it's leading, then lead. If it's healing, then heal. Right, all these different lists. And I, all of a sudden I realized, Lord, am I thinking of myself more highly than I ought? Have I gotten distracted? Right? Have I thought, oh, missionary, that, that seems cool, that's what I should pursue, rather than just listening what your desire is for me, trusting that maybe somebody else can do that. The last thing I want to do, God, is spend my life on my knees begging you, Lord, make me a foot, make me a foot, when God is saying, Jeremiah, I've made you a hand. This is where you belong. Right? The more we understand the specificity of what God has called us to do, the more we get to live in that flourishing and then also entrust that the rest of the body of Christ is gonna come along the way. And so this is exactly what we see with God. He's reiterating, reiterating with Moses, here's what obedience looks like. So let me ask you, church, what is he specifically asking you to do? Think about those things. Don't worry about trying to do a thousand things okay, but the one thing or two things that he's entrusted to you and doing it exceptionally well, maintaining that focus. Okay, now, this fourth point in this passage is easily the most awkward, okay? And it would be real nice and easy to just pretend like we didn't read a couple of those verses and be like, yeah, let's just skip over that. It's confusing. It's weird. But I'm not going to do it. Uh, we're going to talk about it. And, and I'm going to address it. And, and one of the reasons that it's very difficult is because it just comes across weird and it's incredibly difficult to translate. So you're reading along and it's pretty unsettling because all of a sudden you're like, hey, God's meeting with Moses and he wants to kill him. And, and when you first read it, you're like, what? Did I, did I miss a page in here? Like, did they lose a scroll somewhere in the translation process? Like, this is not the plot twist I was expecting. And at the same time, it's pretty unsettling about what it says about God, right? Here's all this investment and all this stuff that he's revealed to Moses, and then without any explanation, he wants to kill him? That's hard to take in. It's an unsettling 
process, but it's incredibly difficult. It is, it is one of the most obscure passages in Exodus, and it's given translators numerous uh, levels of difficulty. Let me explain to you why it's so difficult. It's a very short collection of verses, and it is filled with these idioms and these phrases, these expressions that nobody really knows what they mean, bridegroom of blood, right? It's really hard to grasp what that means, okay? So that's one level of difficulty. Difficulty. The other is that it's filled with personal pronouns, and, and it is incredibly difficult to determine the antecedents of those pronouns. We just went back to English, okay? So, so essentially, let me explain this to you. Every personal pronoun that is in there is a him. There's no name, right? So you read Moses, but you may have a footnote that says, or him. In fact, in Hebrew, the, word, the name Moses is not mentioned in these verses, so they're looking at these personal pronouns and they're having to guess, okay, who is the him referring to? Is it Moses? Is it his son? Is it Pharaoh? Is it somebody else? So it becomes incredibly difficult to translate. Okay, now I'm gonna give you a couple of options of, of how to translate it here in a second. Here's what we do know. It's about circumcision. That, that's exactly the essence of this passage. And so I wanna make sure that we understand the importance of that act and what it might have to do with this particular passage in this story. So, so think back with me. Genesis 17 is where that act of circumcision is instilled in God's people, right? It's with Abraham. So in Genesis 12, God calls Abram, says you're gonna be a great nation. Genesis 15 is where he really seals that covenant through that act of sacrifice. It's there that we get the very prediction that Moses is about to fulfill, right? That Abram, your descendants are gonna be living in a land that is not their own. They're gonna be oppressed, but after 400 years, I'm gonna come and set them free, right? Like, that's exactly the promise that Moses is getting ready to fulfill. Genesis 17, God seals all of that by changing Abram's name to Abraham and then instituting the seal of circumcision. So, so think about it just practically for a moment. The, the essence of God's promise is fertility, right? You're going to have numerous descendants. It, it, you're going you're gonna to basically gonna go back to the original promise of Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. That's what's gonna happen. And so this becomes the external symbol of that covenant that God has made with his people. And so he mandates that every male, bond and free, demonstrate that sort of commitment and devotion to this covenant, okay? And it goes to such great lengths that in the midst of Genesis 17, God says, if anyone doesn't do this, they're gonna be cut off from my people and they will be a breaker of this covenant. So the importance of this act cannot be overstated, okay? And so that's the background. And so here are a couple of possible interpretations. One interpretation is that this is about Moses, right? The argument is that, look, Moses has been the central figure of all these stories so far, and Exodus, he's the central figure in this one. And so the idea is that because Moses was cast aside as an orphan, that because he grew up in Pharaoh's household, he has not gone through the sacred act of, circ of circumcision. And so God is distressed about this hypocrisy, if you will, the fact that Moses is being sent to fulfill this very covenant that Moses has apparently broken by failing to go through this act. And so Zephorah realizes it, and so what she does is she circumcises her son and then goes through this kind of uh, ceremonial act that then transfers that, that symbol upon Moses and it appeases God. That's one way to interpret it, okay? Another way to interpret it, Hans Klossemann gives this option as an interpretation, is that it's not really about Moses at all, it's about his son. And his reason for making that justification is that 
the preceding verses are talking about the curse of the firstborn, that Pharaoh's firstborn is at risk. And so really, who's at risk here is not Moses, but Moses' firstborn son. So that God goes and shows up to Moses and is about to kill him, him being his firstborn son. And so Zipporah then takes that warning, circumcises her firstborn son, goes through the act on her son, not on Moses, and then God is appeased. So take your pick, okay? And there's a lot of variations of how that can be interpreted uh, beyond that, but those are kind of the two main sources of thought. It's a very difficult text to translate. Here's the point for us. It's about final preparation. It's about ultimate preparation to pursue God's call. And understand the deep spiritual significance of what this act meant for God's people. Now, ultimately, over time, what happens is circumcision becomes this external sign and symbol and people lose the essence of it. And that's what the prophets begin to preach against, right? But in Deuteronomy 30, God explains very clearly, I'm coming to circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your children so that you can love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, and live a long life. That's what he's after. He's after complete and total devotion. If we're going to pursue God's call, we have to go through ultimate preparation, not in terms of logistics and strategies, but in complete and total devotion, a heart that is unwavering in its devotion to the Lord is yours. That's what Moses had to go through in this final moment. That's another lesson for us in a pursuit of obedience. Number five, work in a team. Now Aaron enters the scene. Right now we know why Aaron has entered the scene based on our teaching from last week, but, but ultimately now we kind of see this beautiful picture where Aaron and Moses come together. And now, pretty much from here on out, they're, they're working in tandem. And what that should serve as a sign of encouragement to us, when we pursue God's call, when we seek to be obedient, we should seek to do so as a team. Now, again, there are going to be moments where that doesn't work. There, there are numerous biblical examples of people that had to work in isolation because they didn't have that sort of support. But you can also see numerous other examples like this one, Moses and Aaron, or when Jesus sends out the disciples, he sends them out two by two. Paul and Barnabas, over and over again, we see the importance of working in a team when we pursue God's call in our life. Uh, one of my, my mentors was a missions pastor at a church in Dublin, Texas, and uh, he actually had served as a missionary for several years in China, and I remember when he and I met, when he was serving as a missions pastor, he had returned home, and he and I were just trading stories of best practices, and I had asked him, okay, where did, what did you see were the most effective approaches for short-term mission teams when you were a missionary? Like, what, what advice would you give me so that we could equip our team so that they're really effective when they go? And he thought about it for a moment. He said, you know what we discovered when we were serving is that what we did didn't really matter nearly as much as who we had. And he elaborated a little bit further and goes, yeah, in fact, I would say pretty strongly that who was always way more important than what. And that just stuck with me. Right? And ever since then, I've thought about that, that when God calls, he's not just calling you to a task, he's likely calling you to a person. Right? He's brought other people alongside you that you can pursue that with. And so who is it? When you think about the things God is asking you to do, he's calling you into injustice, to fight for justice and to fight for the oppressed, who is he bringing alongside? 
He's calling you into missions. He's calling you into outreach. He's calling you to service. Whatever those things are, who is he brought alongside? Who are you supposed to say, then let's do this together? God calls us in a team. Point number six. After this, Aaron shows up, and you know what they do? They gather the elders, and they perform the signs. They follow through. They obey. I love that, right? Ultimately, if God calls us to do something, we have to follow through. It has to be measurable obedience, right? Here's what I love that doesn't happen. What doesn't happen is Aaron and Moses getting together and go, man, this seems like a really big task. We should, we should talk about this some more. We should talk about what it looks like to be obedient. You know what? Let's have a Bible study. Let's, let's get together. I found this great book about obedience. Let's read about how somebody else has been obedient and talk about what that could look like. For, and you know what? I've even studied it in Hebrew. And then after that, guys, we've got this conference coming up where all these other people are wrestling with obedience. We can go to that conference and we can talk about that. Like, that's not what happened. They followed through. They did it. And that's exactly what you and I have to do as well. When God calls us to a specific task, at some point we have to be obedient. We can't just sit around and talk about it and daydream about it. We actually have to follow through. And so is that follow through evident in your life? Right? So this is kind of the, the lessons that you can get from this. It's, it's a loosely connected passage, but I love the application that when, when, when God's power calls and gets a hold of our heart and we begin to pursue that sort of obedience, we need to test that call out in the context of community. We need to recognize that it's often gonna lead us to face our fears, that we're gonna have to be focused and understand the specifics, right? That we need to go through full preparation and have our hearts fully devoted to God to work in a team and then follow through, right? Some wonderful lessons from this passage. Here's how I wanna conclude. What fruit does it create? And I love this. Right, they gather the elders of Israel, and then what do we see? This is the concluding thought, and it's such an affirming thought. We see the fruit of their obedience. We see the fruit of their faithfulness, the fruit of God's power working itself out in their lives. What is that fruit? They believed, they heard, they worshiped. <laughs> Man, I love that. That's the fruit we desire. When God's power works in our lives and we pursue his call, absolutely it'll change you. Absolutely it'll have an impact on you and your understanding of life, this world, and God, but it should also have an impact on others, right? That there should be other people that you encounter and because of what God is doing and has done and will do in your life, they believe and they hear and they worship. That's the prayer, that's the desire of this obedience. That idea of belief conveys that concept of certainty, right? They have this unwavering faith. They believe it. They have this, this confidence with which they can now trust because of what they see on display in your life and in your call. And not only that, they hear the message, right? I love this, that, that God isn't calling people to believe in Moses, He's calling them to believe in him and the message that they send. What was the message that Aaron and Moses declared to the Israelites? God hears you. He is concerned about you in your suffering. He's concerned about your misery and he's come to set you free. Is that not our message, church? When we go out and pursue God's call and his power works itself out in our life, it may manifest itself in a lot of different ways, but regardless of how it manifests itself in your life, the message 
is the same. The people that are beneficiaries of your obedience need to hear this message that God sees them, he hears them, he's concerned about their suffering. And when somebody asks you, how do I know that he's concerned? How do I know that he sees me? Then you point them to Jesus. And you say, listen, God so loved you, he so loved this world that he gave his one and only son for you, that anyone who would believe in him, trust in him, follow him, will not perish, will not suffer, but will have everlasting life. That's how you know. That's the message that needs to be heard. Do you believe it? Do you proclaim it? Do the people around you hear it? And when we declare those things so faithfully in what God has called us to do, then the result is collective worship. Now, I love the way worship is described in this passage. In fact, we have three different terms to help paint this picture. The first word actually comes when God is talking to Moses about telling Pharaoh to let his people go and worship him. Now, I love that word because that word, it really implies work and servitude. So, so catch the picture, right? Moses is saying, or God is telling Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him that, that those people, those Israelites, they're not to serve Pharaoh, they're to serve me. It's a power play once again, right? I'm the one that is worthy of worship, not you. I'm the one that's worthy of service and obedience, not you. That's what he is declaring. That's what worship looks like. It's this idea of servitude. Then it's complemented with those last two words that speak to bow down and worship again, which ultimately means to fall at God's feet. It's an act of surrender. It's a declaration of lordship, right? It takes us back to the great mistake in the garden, right? The great mistake that created the fall, the very heart of sin is for us to wanna go our own way, to live our own life and to refuse to see God as God. But true worship is when we come together and we declare his sovereignty. That's why in our context, when people finally respond to the power of God, when they believe and they hear the message, their declaration is Jesus is Lord. And that is the ultimate expression of worship. And that's what he's called us to see and to pursue. And so that's my prayer, church that all of us would embrace this next season with thoughtful and intentional reflection of how these things are working themselves out in your life. He has called you. God's power calls, not just to the person next to you, not to the person <clears throat> behind you, it's called you. And so what does that look like? Are you willing to go through these steps to, to be obedient? Are you ready to have that sort of passion <clears throat> that sort of commitment, that sort of devotion, so that collectively we can arrive at a place and not just see what God is calling me to do or you to do, but what he's calling us to do. And that we will be on this journey together where this prayer begins to continue to take shape, that we would see God's power at work in our lives. We'd see this power unleashed in this church and by extension then it will spill out into this community in this world so that we truly will see tongues tribes and nations coming to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ that you and I will be able to point to numerous stories of those who have believed who have heard and who have worshiped God's power calls this church let's get to work let's pray
Father in heaven, we love you. And we ask that you would help us to commit ourselves to you today. God, that we would respond in faithful obedience to the things that you've called us to do. God, that for each of us that are here today, you would speak very specifically and directly. That you would help us understand what some practical next steps would be and how we can pursue them, God. And then as you send us out with your power, we would truly declare the message of hope that we have in Jesus. God, that so many others would once again be awakened to the fact that, God, you see them, that you're concerned about them, and that they can turn and give their hope to Jesus Christ. God, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has not heard that message, who has never truly had an opportunity to respond to the love that you have shown them through Jesus Christ, God, would you allow them to receive it today? Allow them to believe it. Allow that power to work within their hearts that they too would give their lives to you and that they also would answer your righteous and your holy call. We thank you, Father, for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you are going to do. We are grateful that you are with us and that you are always with us. May we live fearlessly for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.